So Money episode 143, Amanda Abella. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. If you're looking to start your own online business, but the thought of selling and financial uncertainty makes you want to forget about your dream once and for all, well, don't despair just yet. Today's guest is a millennial business coach and a best-selling author. Her book is called Make Money Your Honey. She's been featured in Forbes, The Huffington Post, and Business Insider. She helps entrepreneurs overcome these exact challenges because she's been there and done that, and she helps entrepreneurs become more comfortable with selling and changing their money mindset all to create and run a successful online business. Her name is Amanda Abella. During our time together with Amanda, we're going to learn how millennials are sabotaging their income potential. Her number one tip for aspiring self-published authors and how Amanda figures out how much to charge her clients. All good things. Here is Amanda Abella. Amanda Abella, welcome to So Money. A pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. You uh, recently published, self-published, a great book called Make Money Your Honey. And I actually interviewed you as I was doing some research for my keynote at FinCon 14 last fall about how to really execute a successful self-published book. I think a few years ago, it was something that many people thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to self-publish a book and make a name for myself. You have to go through one of the traditional publishers, but you have proven all of those people wrong, including myself at one point. Um, and you're very excited and passionate about this particular topic of, um, as a millennial, especially making money really uh, a bigger part of your, of your life and your focus in life. Make money your honey. What was the, uh, the genesis for this book? Um, well, I guess the real genesis, um, if you read the introduction and stuff is, you know, I graduated, uh, in 2010 from college. I went about six months without being able to find any sort of employment. And it took me about a year before I could find full-time employment. Um, when did you start- graduate? 2010. Yeah. So that was a tough market. It was, it was bad. <laughs> um, I think that year, like 80% of college graduates had to move back home, um, if we did find jobs, we were underemployed. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Um, and at the same time, I realized that there were all these, um, that was the year that that really famous New York Times article came out, the what is it about 20 somethings that was like, <laughs> oh, you're all entitled and like to Instagram your food, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, and you have no idea how the real world works. And I was here thinking, well, of course, we don't know how the real world works, because everything we've been taught, like, went up in smoke, like this, the same rules don't apply. Um, so in order for me to cope with what was going on at the time, I knew I needed, you know, to make money. Um, and I knew that I knew how to write. So I literally started with a Google search of how to start freelance writing online. <laughs> um, wow. it all started with a Google search. <laughs> Um, and so many things start like that, by the I way. So many things start like that. What did we do before Google? I really, I can barely remember. I honestly couldn't tell you. <laughs> I, I, I would be severely unemployed right now if there was. 
Google or internet. Anyway, back to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's how I kind of started coping with it. And, you know, just trying to figure out ways to make money on my own. Mm -hmm. At the time, I didn't realize that I was basically um, in the midst of this kind of revolution that's been going on in, you know, the workplace where people are opting out of traditional careers you know, to go into freelancing and solopreneurship and online business and all these things that, you know, were not really available before, um, or they were, and people just didn't know it was an option. So I didn't realize at the time that that's what was happening, but that's what was happening. <laughs> and you say on your website, you have a, a, a free e-course, five ways millennials can stop sabotaging their chances of making money. Sabotaging. What are we doing wrong? Um, well, I talk about a few things in, in that e-course, but one of the things I talk about is, you know, you're not creating some extra form of income. Um, because, you know, I ended up recruiting for a couple years for fortune 500 companies. Um, so I did eventually find a job <laughs> and at that job, you know, we specialized in college grad placements within, you know, some of America's top companies. And it was a combination of like young people having like a deer in headlights kind of thing because, I mean, the economy was a mess. Um, but also like really not having a solid footing or grounding in how it is that, you know, career and personal finance works. And, you know, people have been telling us forever, you have to diversify your income, you have to diversify your income, you have to diversify your income, but people still aren't doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I talk about in that e-course is, you know, along the lines of like, hey, you know, we came of age when people who'd been working at the same job for 30 years lost it. You know, I interviewed people who lost their jobs from one week to the next when I was working in recruiting just because there was a company merger and new management came in and they got rid of everybody who was making, you know, X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, this stuff happens. And the only way for us to really um, kind of be more secure in our finances and in our careers is to ensure that we are building other sources of income. But so many people don't do it. Right. Even right. though they know they should. A lot of us want to be entrepreneurs, but I, I feel as though you don't really get the confidence to go out on your own until you've experienced what it's like to work within a company, right? To, to kind of get yeah. that education, to learn the ropes, make mistakes in a relatively safer environment where you're still going to get that paycheck. Um, what do you say to that? Do you think that you can still just get out of college and Google <laughs> Google something that you want to do and do it and um, and create a following? I mean, I know that doesn't sound viable, but you know what I'm trying to get at is like <laughs> how much experience do you really need in order to really market yourself as somebody that is trustworthy that you that you want to give your money to that is, you know, has the insights and the tools and the education and the experience to really be uh, self-employed. Yeah, I think there's kind of two sides to that. The first side is um, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, so if you're in a position where you can't find a job, right, in, most people would be like, okay, I got to figure something out. And that's how we've seen a lot of businesses and startups and, and online entrepreneurs start is because they either got laid off or they couldn't find a job or what have you, right? It was economic circumstances that basically pushed them um, into this. But on the flip side, you know, I would be, you know, lying if I said that, you know, real jobs don't help you 
when it comes time to, you know, be an entrepreneur. I mean, if I had not worked in recruiting, I worked in a small business that had been around for 45 years, right? And other than my boss, I was basically the only other full-time employee, right? So I was doing like three people's jobs, really. (laughs) Yeah. Which happens a lot in small business. It's just kind of the way it is. And But that gave me a lot of the training, you know, and a lot of the chops that I use today, not just to build my own business, but also to teach people how to build their own so they could have extra sources of income or if they don't feel like working at a corporate job so they can build their own assets. I love this advice. It's kind of advice that I followed myself not knowing what I was actually doing back in, you know, when I got out of college and grad school. I, like you said, it was born out of necessity. I needed to make more than $18 an hour to live in New York uh, and to pay off my student loans and to have a little bit of money, you know, to maybe get a slice of pizza once in a while. Talk about Make Money Your Honey. You self-published this book. I, fi- I have such admiration and respect for you for doing this so well as well. What would be your number one bit of advice for anybody listening who's like, you know what, I really want, so many of my listeners really want to make a jump to entrepreneurship or being a thought leader within their space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times having a book is the perfect vehicle for that. And you're not, not everyone can get a a grand slam publishing deal with HarperCollins or Penguin, but there is the self-publishing route. What would be your biggest advice for somebody who wants to go the DIY route? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things that's changed, right, is now suddenly things to Amazon, you know, Kindle and create space, people can do this. It's not like you have to buy a ton of books, you know, put that huge investment up front. I mean, it's printing on demand, <laughs> you know, or it's digitally delivered. That's one of the huge ways that, you know, Internet and online entrepreneurship has just um, kind of changed these systems that were set in place for such a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Publishing being one of them. And I think for anyone who wants to do it, I'm going to, and I'm sure you could attest to this, like writing the book is the easy part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, in comparison to like the, you know, marketing, marketing and the, you know, putting it together and the editing and that whole process. Like, honestly, if you really wanted to sit down and write a book, you could probably do it in a couple of weeks. You know, if you really like put your mind to it, get a draft out, just get it out. That's the easy part is just getting it out. Um, so what I would suggest people do, and this is what I did is, you know, seek people who have already done it to kind of guide you through that process. Cause it's going to make it a lot easier. Yes. Yes. And, and what I find is lacking is really the education around how to market a book successfully. I've worked with several publishers, there's a limited amount of information and insight and analysis that publishers have, believe it or not, in their own industry. Um, and so finding the people who, the authors who've been there and done that and can look back and say, I wish I had done it this way or this really worked well for me, find those people because they will be so in- in- invaluable to you and your experience. So that's that's a great tip. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, for me, for example, um, it was at FinCon, you know, they did a a panel on self-publishing and that was when I realized, oh crap, I have a draft of a book, (laughs) like sitting on my computer and I didn't even know it. And I think that's another thing too, like, especially those who maybe have been blogging for a while or, or they just have a doc sitting on their computer. I mean, you probably have a lot more material than you even realize you do. Mm -hmm. We all have a book inside of us or maybe a podcast, maybe Maybe. both. 
Amanda, tell us a little bit about yourself. I want to know what your financial philosophy really is. Like if you had to distill it into one sentence, what would you say is your money mantra? Make money or honey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But really, I've become fascinated with um, the relationship that people have with money. Um, Oftentimes, it's not how much we have or how much we make. Oftentimes, it's just how we feel about it. Um, And I didn't really realize this until I was working in recruiting and I was interviewing people who were making six figures a year and were still up to their eyeballs in debt, you know? Or people, I interviewed people that during, you know, the the mortgage boom, they were making like $400,000 in commissions a year. Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> like just in commissions, $400,000 in one year. And they blew all of it, you know? So I realized that there was this really huge disconnect going on. Like people did not know, either they didn't know basic like financial principles, but I didn't think that was it because we're pounded with it, you know? You can go Google it. Yes. You know, I mean, it's not like it's difficult to go find, but I realized that it was a lot more psychological. It was a lot more emotional. Um, so what I've realized in my own life and also in the lives of many of my clients and readers is once you get that psychological, emotional part down, right, then the practical stuff becomes a whole lot easier. Oh, yeah. It's definitely the backbone of all financial decisions is just getting your head straight first. Yeah. And I feel like... um for a long time that they were kind of divorced, you know, like the, the emotional psychological aspects of, and, and, you know, the logical stuff of like budgeting or investing or mortgages, whatever. I feel like for a long time, they kind of divorced the two. Mm-hmm. And I, and now I think I've seen a lot more of it, you know, people talking about the emotions behind money and the psychology behind money. And, and one thing I've seen a lot of, instead of people giving you like this one size fits all financial formula, which we all know doesn't work. Um, otherwise we would not still be in the situations we are in many Americans. Um, you know, they're saying, okay, well, what is it that you value? What is it that you want to spend your money on? Focus on that and then cut in the places where you don't want to spend your money so much because you don't really care. Right. Right. Totally. I've I've seen a lot more of that going on. Um, and that's just kind of how I roll. Like in my book, I talk about, you know, clothes isn't a big deal to me, (laughs) you know? Um, I will find ways to not have to pay a lot of money for clothes, but you're not going to see me like spending 300 bucks at Nordstrom, even though I really love Nordstrom. Um, like great return policy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like you just won't see me doing it. Right. Because it's not something that I really value or, you know, a car isn't something that I really value either. So you're not going to see me spending like an exorbitant amount of cash on a car or taking out a huge loan for a car because I just really don't care. Mm. Right. Yeah. You're really conscious about it. That's the difference between making mistakes and, and spending, uh, meaningfully. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, you know, I'm going to pump a lot of money into my business. I'm going to pump a lot of money into causes I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to pump a lot of money into travel. Yeah. They say you want to get to know somebody, check their uh, bank account statement. Yeah, it's so <laughs> true. Um, my accountant says that he was, you could learn a lot <laughs> yeah. about people from, you know, what they spend their money on. You could learn a lot about what people value. What was the biggest lesson you learned growing up about money? Talk a little bit about your background. I know that you have an immigrant story and your parents are Cuban, I believe. Cuban, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how, how that influenced your uh, your understanding of how the money world works and um, maybe any um, interesting lessons learned at a young age. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think my lesson, people ask me all the time, like on interviews, like, oh, your parents must be freaking out because they're boomers and you're kind of doing your own thing. And I'm like, actually, my parents aren't really typical boomers because they're not from this country. (laughs) Um, You know, so I think having grown up in Miami, which is like a huge political exile community, you know, I lived in a community of people who literally lost everything you know, to the government, like my mom, my family, my mom's side of the family, for example, had, you know, a lot of land in Cuba, and they had farms, and and they were fine, they were pretty well off. And my mom remembers one day the government coming in saying, hey, this all belongs to Cuba now, it's not yours. My God, you know, your land isn't yours, your farm isn't yours, the animals aren't yours. um, The livestock isn't yours, the property isn't yours, this all belongs to like the common people or whatever they were saying during the revolution. And she remembers that she was a child. Um, so my parents were basically uprooted from their homes. They came to the U S separately. Like, um, they didn't meet until, you know, the seventies in Miami. Um, but they were uprooted as children. Basically everything was taken from them. Um, my dad came to the U S by himself at the age of 11. (laughs) What? Well, my grandfather was already here. Um, so, you know, he lived in New York in poverty, basically. Um, my mom went from Castro, Cuba to Franco, Spain, um, also living in poverty. And when she came to the U.S. and New Jersey, living in poverty. Um, and they got out of it. You know, like they really worked their tails off to get out of it. And I think a part of the reason it was such a push is because at such a young age, they realized, you know, the importance, I guess, of a free market and the importance of hard work and the importance of freedom and the importance of liberty um, and how that could lead to, you know, um, good economic circumstances. Right. And they really instilled that in us when we were kids. They're like, you know, you have to like, don't take for granted what you have here in the U.S. Like, you guys can start a business from one day to the next, <laughs> basically, in the U.S. My dad would always tell me, my parents are from Iran, and he and it didn't really make sense to me. I didn't really appreciate this when I was younger, but he would more often than not say to me, you should really appreciate the fact that, you know, we're living in the United States because it could have easily been the other way around. You could have been easily growing up in a country that does not – at the time, you know, um, appreciate um, independence and freedom and it's not a democracy and you wouldn't be allowed to go to school wearing the clothes that you're wearing. You wouldn't be allowed to even probably get an education. So I thought he was talking about some alternate universe. I was like, what is this country, Iran, that there are not, you know, where it is so um, Yeah, I think when you're first generation, it's interesting being first generation American because Um, You know, you hear these stories from your parents and your grandparents and you're aware of what goes on in other parts of the world and you're aware of these, you know, you know, economic and political injustices right, Mm -hmm. that occur. But at the same time, I guess because, you know, you're born here and you didn't have to live through the injustice yourself, you know. It almost seems like an exaggeration. It's like, you know, I had to walk uphill, you know, both ways in snow going to school. But it's like, no, you get older and you read the history books and you're, you know, and and you watch the news and you're you're like, wow, I am really lucky to be in America. You're really lucky. And my parents, like, have really, really instilled that in me from a young age. And then, you know, growing up, my mom is retiring this year. She's worked for the government for 35 years. Um, my dad's, you know, been in small businesses and also large corporate companies. And my mom, especially, I think, um, 
she really, I, I guess she was always pretty entrepreneurial, but she was too afraid to act or because she was an immigrant, she felt like it was harder or, you know, economic circumstances at the time, you know, my grandparents were much older when they came to this country, they couldn't find work. So, um, you know, my mom had to help support them and so on and so forth. Right. I guess she never acted on it. Um, but with me, (laughs) she's like, you better act on it. Yeah. Good for your mom. I'm glad she instilled that in you. What would you say is your biggest money mistake, your financial failure, uh, in your young adult life thus far? Um, I don't have like a huge catastrophic mistake. I have like the same mistakes everyone else makes. Like, hey, I made money in college and I blew all of it. <laughs> or like, you know, I've gotten in and out of credit card debt. I have all that stuff. But I think my biggest um, my biggest mistake, and, and this is something that I have to work on every single day, um, has been being too afraid to ask for more. For example, like on your first job, when you finally got that job, you didn't, you were just happy to be there. I was just happy to be there. I mean, after a year of not being able to find full-time work, I would have taken anything, honestly. Um, But I I remember there was an article I read recently on LinkedIn that made a big splash about the differences between a workaholic and a high achiever. And one of them really caught my eye. And it was that, you know, workaholics let other people dictate their value for them. Hmm. And high achievers, you know, are very authoritative in their value and they stand in it and they let people know what that value is. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a workaholic. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I have to think about that. Yeah. It makes you stop and think. And actually that kind of dovetails something that I learned at a Tony Robbins event. And I apologize if you're listening to this podcast and you've already heard me say this. It's like, I tell this to everybody because it's become such a part of the fabric of my life now, but it's success without fulfillment is failure. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of dovetails what you just said in that, you know, if you're a workaholic, there's probably no fulfillment in what you're doing. If you're a high achiever, you're actually following your passion. You may be more demanding. You know what you want and it's riskier even. And you're just as hardworking in some ways, but you're at least you're doing it to uh, to please yourself as opposed to other people. Yeah. And honestly, it's something I see all the time, um, you know, in my peers, but also like back in February, I did an an event for um, this international organization of women entrepreneurs. And it's like an epidemic, this whole like being too afraid to ask for more thing. Either people think they're too young or they shouldn't do it or, you know, and I'm here saying like, it takes a while for you to really start seeing that, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, um, no one's deciding your salary for you. You know, like you decide that you don't have to go through red tape for someone to give you an extra 25 cents an hour, which I experienced at my first job. (laughs) 25 cents. Yeah. It took like four months for them to make an extra 25 cents an hour. And by that point, I'd already started freelancing. So I was like, dude, I could probably sell a pen on the street corner for a bigger profit a lot faster than it takes (gasps) you guys. Oh my gosh. You could sell lemonade. At a better profit. Um, Let's talk about success. What would you say is your so money moment? Besides, of course, writing Make Money or Honey. Um, I think it's just when I get emails from – well, first of all, I think one really successful moment for me was last year because my only real – I've been taking it in baby steps. So my only real goal in 2014, which was the first like full year that I was on my own as an entrepreneur, was just make more money than you did at a regular job. Just make – just, you know, 
make the same amount of money or more, you know, and I did that. I made more money than I made at a regular job. And that was really, um, it was really eye opening because that helped me realize like, number one, this can be done. Right. Um, number two, you did this doing stuff you actually like to do. (laughs) Was it easier than you thought? It was a lot easier than I thought. Yeah. And I think part of what kept me from doing it for so long and something that I see oftentimes in the people that I coach is we have all these fears about the money not showing up or they're not being enough. Or, and it really, it comes down to the fact that we, it's almost like we don't trust ourselves to make and manage money. How do you determine how much to charge for your services? Um, wow. That's a really good question. Again, this is one of those things that people try and do like a blanket formula. <laughs> Yeah. And like, it doesn't really work. The way that I do it personally is the way that one of my coaches taught me. And I'm like, okay, well, this is how much money I want to make, you know, based on my current payment structure, this is how many people I would have to take on. And then I test it according to, you know, how much time I have and how much time I want to work. So I start asking myself, okay, is it feasible? I'm just throwing a number out here. Is it feasible to take on, you know, 25 coaching clients in a month? Right. And when I realize it's not, then I'm like, okay, the price has got to go up. (laughs) Mm hmm. Well, they get more of you. Yeah, or I got to get more of me, right? And which, I mean, it's not easy to duplicate yourself, you know? Um, You can delegate, but you're never going to totally duplicate yourself. Um, So you got to start making those kinds of decisions, you know? So I, the way I figure out my pricing is I base it on how much I want to make with how much time I actually have. Um, And I think that's actually something that a lot of people don't do is they don't take into account, you know, how much can I realistically take on? Or, you know, do I want to give myself the weekend off? Or, you know, how much time do I want to spend with my family? Like they don't tend to think about putting that in the calculations. Mm-hmm. How about a habit, Amanda? What's a what's your top money habit that help that really serves your financial decision making process? Um, I don't know if it's particularly a money habit or an everything habit, but it has helped me make decisions. And that's um, meditation, actually, because it gets me out of like my crazy brain, right? Um, It calms me down, it gets me out of my crazy brain. Um, You know, if I have to make really big decisions, like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to invest all this money in my business, for example, I've never done this before. You know, my mind tends to go where most people's minds would go. We're like, oh, my God, can you do this? Where's the money going to come from? What if you fail? You know, all that stuff, you know, and and when I sit my butt down on a meditation pillow and I just kind of chill out, you know, I'm kind of able to come back to center and then make more conscious decisions. I'm so fascinated with meditation. I feel as though it's meditation got some really great PR campaign behind (laughs) it in in, in, like I say, the last year because it's interesting that so many of my guests um, do talk about it and not just my guests, but I just have been noticing more articles and there's apps now to help you meditate. My brother's trying to look into this. It's like, wait a minute. Am I, you know, I've tried it. I I, I feel like I tried to meditate when I, when I was younger. I, I bought books. I bought tapes. I couldn't focus. I didn't feel like I was ever going to get to that chill out place that mm-hmm. um, I would just either fall asleep which is not really meditating yeah. because I have lots of dreams too. <laughs> or I, um, I just would get too distracted. Mm-hmm. So what's your secret to meditating successfully? Like, especially for somebody who is a little on the fence about it and, and doesn't feel like they have 
the emotional and mental capacity to really dedicate to this? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it, when people think of meditation, they think of like, you got to go be sitting in an ashram for like two hours, you know, and have like the candles and the nice music. Like people don't think that they could do it. And yeah, you know what I mean? Like really meditation at its most basic, basic, basic level is just taking deep breaths. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, Okay, I'm writing that down. Take deep breaths. Right. And you could do it anywhere, anytime. I did it for five minutes this morning. I mean, I didn't sit there for an hour. (laughs) You know, I don't have time for that. Um, You know, I might do it again for another five minutes after lunch, or I may not do it at all. You know, later this, I make sure to do it at least once a day. But I remember when I was first starting, And, um, I was really, really busy with my job and building a brand on the side. I mean, I had a lot going on for two and a half, three years where I basically had no life. It was like work and sleep. Um, and I remember like mornings was totally out of the question because I was, you know, trying to get out the door. But I remember being in situations where like I would take my iPod to work and like, you know, if I had to go like if I was having a bad day, like I would go into the stairwell for like five minutes and just stick in one of those like recorded meditations and just do it even if I only had like three minutes. Right. And Mm -hmm. that was just so, so helpful Um, because it's not you don't have to sit there for two hours. You don't even have to sit there for half an hour. I mean. Yes. Okay. There are more benefits to it, but what's better? Like you doing it for five minutes every day or doing it for an hour once a week? Hmm. Yeah. No. And I think I like how you said it's really just about taking deep breaths and slowing down for 10 minutes um, and not trying to multitask and be all things to all people, which is hard to escape sometimes. Yeah. And, and I think oftentimes like we're so reactive to our situations I mean, sometimes we handle paperwork as if we're being chased by lions or something, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so like, God, we're so intense about everything. <laughs> it's so true. And I love to hear you say this because uh, you're so real. You're so raw, Amanda. I really appreciate your, your perspectives and your willingness to just kind of like, you know what, just say it like it is. And so uh, with that, I'd like to end with some so money fill in the blanks and just share more of what it is that is on your stream of consciousness. Let's do it. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million, the first thing I would do is? Good question. I think the first thing I would do was make sure my parents never had to worry about money again in their lives. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's probably what I would do too. And there'd be a lot left over, hopefully, after that. Yes. (laughs) One thing that makes my life easier or better or both is? Uh, Meditation. (laughs) All right. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, maybe a little too much, is? I don't spend a lot of money on this, but one of my major guilty pleasures is reality TV. (laughs) (laughs) You spend time. Time is a precious commodity. What do you watch? Real Housewives, mostly. What's your favorite? I, um, probably Atlanta. Really? I saw, I dropped Atlanta. I just couldn't really keep you up with Atlanta. I, I'm not so excited with it this last season. Beverly Hills is also pretty good. I love Beverly Hills. I, I mean, wish New York would get back the original cast because get it together, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't under, I don't like when they change the cast all the time. It's like hard to really get attached. Yeah, which is probably I mean, a good thing actually. You don't need to get attached to yeah. reality TV. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, at the end of the day, if I've been working really hard, like, I just want to watch something that doesn't 
you know, it's fun. It's flighty. It doesn't require a lot of work on my part. Yeah. It's, it's, it will break up my marriage one day though. If I watch it too much, <laughs> my husband says he has to leave the room. It's just too much screaming. And I said, you know what? This is for me. This is like you watching, um, you know, uh, the zombies on TV. It's like the same level. It's like I, the same visceral reaction that I get when he watches Walking Dead. Yeah. I, mean, I can't, I can't deal with those shows. <laughs> Um, so we each have our thing. But anyway, again, I knew I liked you for some reason, you know, if, if for no other reason. We have an, uh, we're kindred spirits when it comes to reality TV. Well, let's talk about one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up. What is it? Um, that I don't have to be so afraid of it. Hmm. Um, you know, my parents were really good about the basics. Like I've never had care. I've never really carried a balance on my credit. Yeah, no, I don't think I ever have. I've always paid off my credit card in full. Um, because my parents basically instilled the fear of God in me. (laughs) Yes, mine (laughs) too. It worked. When it came to credit cards. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, again, because of what they've been through, um, my parents, um, you know, having had everything ripped from them, you know, when they came to the U.S., they were living in poverty. I think there might be a lot of lack mentality going on and a lot of fear sometimes. So like my parents are really, really, really risk averse. Um, and I think that sometimes, especially in entrepreneurship, that that can really hinder you. Of course. Yeah. Well, it's understandable having come to this yeah. country with with virtually nothing, their wealth basically taken away from them in, yeah. uh, in their homeland. So yeah, it, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because... Um, actually the National Wildlife Society, because I, I need to be out in nature, not so much Florida nature, like swamp. I don't need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I keep telling, I was visiting a friend of mine in California last year and I remember hiking in the redwoods and in the mountains. And I'm like, I need to do this at least once a year. Like this, this is like my sanctuary. (laughs) And I'm Amanda Abella and I'm so money because... Um, because I teach people how to make money their honey. Yes. What's the like best story you can share with us from a client that like came back to you and said, Amanda, my money is not only my honey, but it is like my sugar mama, my, you know, my everything, my, <laughs> like that they really were able to take their finances from great to excellent. Um, I got a few of those. Um, I think one story that's actually very recent And again, this is something I see a lot in millennials and in women. Um, Millennials probably because we're still pretty young. Women because a whole myriad of reasons. Um, But this client in particular was still struggling. This is the second time we'd worked together. She came back a year later, bought the biggest package I had basically. And she initially came to me thinking that she was having an issue marketing herself and blogging. And that's why she wasn't making, you know, enough money. And after like three or four sessions, I realized that really like the root issue there was assertiveness and thinking she was good enough to make the kind of money that she wanted to make, you know, and, and being assertive in so far as not letting her clients walk all over her, ask for the kind of money that she wanted. Um, again, you know, just going back to trusting herself to do whatever it is she needs to do. And once she made that connection that it was a matter of assertiveness, like opportunities just started falling in her lap. Because she was able to be conscious of it and not let it happen. Yeah. I love that story. Mm -hmm. Well, Amanda, thank you so very, very much. Everyone check out 
Make Money Your Honey and amandaabella.com. We're going to have all the links over at somoneypodcast.com. Amanda, you've been fantastic. Hope to have you back on soon. Yes, that would be so much fun. Thank you for having me. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Amanda, like I mentioned, her website is amandaabella.com. She's on Twitter at amandaabella. All this over at somoneypodcast.com as well as the transcript from this interview. And I want to hear from you. Submit your question about money, work, life, or guests at somoneypodcast.com. There's a very good chance that I will answer it this weekend. Just click on Ask Farnoosh when you get onto the website. And as a reminder, if you'd like the chance to win a free 15-minute money session with me, Hop on over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to get a free 15-minute money blitz with me. And so if this is something that interests you, hop on to iTunes, leave a review, and hopefully we will connect. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you right back here tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. <laughs>